All right, well, good morning, church. Well, again, we're going to be in John chapter 5 this morning, so I hope everyone brought your Bibles, because we're simply teaching God's Word simply, as Chuck Smith used to say. If I can find John chapter 5. We spent three weeks in chapter 4, and we're probably going to spend three weeks in chapter 5 as well, because it breaks down into three sections. And the one good, easy way to divide the sections of chapter 5 up are like this. What we're going to be speaking about this morning, which is the healing at the Pool of Bethesda, that section you can call the cure. And then what we're probably going to be going over next week is the controversy. And of course, the controversy is the fact that, is not just the fact that Jesus healed someone on the Sabbath. Okay. That was controversial. Remember what he tells them? Get up, take up your bed and walk. They weren't really mad at that guy, but they want to know who told him to do it, which was Jesus. The controversy isn't so much that it was done on the Sabbath, though. That was controversial. The controversy, which we'll talk more about later, is what Jesus says in his response to them when they ask him about it. And that, of course, leads to the third section of chapter five, which is the claim, what Jesus continues to say about who he is and why he's here which really was, for the most part, the controversy. But it all starts today with what we're going to be talking about here at the beginning of chapter 5, which is the healing at the pool of Bethesda. And it's actually pools of Bethesda. There's more than one. And Bethesda means house of mercy. And that's what it means in the Hebrew. It's actually an Aramaic word. And this is the only use of that word um, in the New Testament. And so within the old city walls of Jerusalem, on the northeast side of the city, there is a church called St. Anne's Church. And if you were to come out of St. Anne's Church and take a left, no, a right, excuse me, and walk about 100 feet, maybe, to the north, that's where you'll see the excavated pools of Bethesda. And I think they've been excavating them now for over 20 years. I think it was around 20 years ago or just over 20 years ago when they started excavating the pools of Bethesda. Uh, one of the things about archaeology in the Bible, of course, is that they say, well, we can't find that. The Bible must be wrong because we never found that. We don't know where that is. We, we didn't know where that. We can't find the pools of Bethesda or whatever. And then, lo and behold, they find the pools of Bethesda and they uncover them and, they, and, they, uh, and they've been working on them for like excavating them now for like 20 years. So during the Byzantine area, they built a church around those pools, even, even slightly over the pool, and they called it the Church of the Sheep because that pool is near what? It's near the Sheep Gate of old Jerusalem. And during the Crusader times, they built another church between the pools and they called it the Church of the Paralytic. Now I want you to pay attention to that name because what that does is it gives you an idea of how long right, people thought that these pools had healing powers. Okay? Because they called it the Church of the Paralytic even during the Crusader times. So those are the ruins that they're excavating. Like I said, they had two basins originally, north and the south. And the archaeological evidence shows that the, the southern basin had broader steps and landings and, uh, and such. And the northern basin, okay, so I guess maybe it was the northern basin that was the reservoir that replaced the southern basin. I had it the other way around, maybe. But it is at these pools that for decades, maybe even longer, maybe even centuries, that people would come 
pilgrims would gather and they would flock to these pools in Bethesda and uh, to purify themselves. And as also we'll read this morning, they would flock to these pools to seek healing. So let's read John 5, 1 through 17. It says, after this, which is after when Jesus was in Cana in Galilee, he's come back now, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. And in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and he said to him, see you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your words, and I pray you to speak these to us. I pray, Lord, that you just draw these words into our hearts so that we can apply them, and we can live in them, and we can walk in them. I thank you for the strength of these words and the grace and the mercy and the love that you show us, that we see in these passages. So we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometime between the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5 here, Jesus has made the, the trek back from the region of Galilee, the city of Cana, some 70 miles probably, back to Jerusalem. It doesn't tell us you know, how long that took or what happened in the, in, in the meantime. None of that's really important. But remember, if he left Judah at the beginning of chapter 4, if he left Judah to avoid the limelight because he was getting too much attention because his disciples were baptizing more people than John's disciples were and it was attracting crowds or whatever, um, then he comes back to Jerusalem to do just the opposite, actually. All right? to, to, in a sense, he comes back to Jerusalem to stir up the waters, right? And we'll talk more about that in just a second. But what, I mean, what he does today does create, absolutely create waves, if I can borrow the analogy. So when Jesus and his disciples come to, come to Jerusalem, they're coming to Jerusalem for the feast. Now it doesn't tell us which feast. Some people think it's the, the, the tabernacle, feast of tabernacle. Some people think it's Passover. To me, it doesn't really matter and uh, why do I say that? Because here's one of the questions you should ask yourself first. Did Jesus come back to Jerusalem to attend the feast? Or did he come back to Jerusalem for one man? And I think the question answers itself. I think it's pretty self-explanatory 
in the passages that we just read. Right? That's verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. In some translations it says a certain man. I say Jesus came back to Jerusalem purposefully for a certain man. Now he didn't come back just for that man, but he came back for a certain man. He had a purpose. Everything he did was purposeful right, and with intent. Now, if it had been the Passover, and Jerusalem would have been busier than normal because all the Jews returned to Jerusalem for the Passover, so it's packed with Jews. And Jesus, of course, being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, seeks out a certain man and heals him, right, at this, at these mystical, legendary pools, the pools of Bethesda, by the sheep gate. Well, is that symbolic enough for you? I mean, it's possible that, that it was the Passover and that, again, Jesus coming to this specific area near this specific gate, being the Lamb of God, was a little bit of an image, a little bit of an image there for, for us. Anyway, these pools are legendary, and for a legitimate reason. And if you wonder what the legitimate reason uh, is for these pools being legendary, and you look at your Bible and you're like, well, you know, I was just counting the verses, and it goes one, two, three, five. Wait a minute. What happened to verse 4? If you look in your Bible and you don't have a verse 4, don't be surprised. Don't, don't, don't fall over in shock. I don't have a verse 4 in my Bible either. But this is what verse 4 says. King James or New King James, maybe even the NASB will have verse 4, but most other translations take verse 4 out. But this is what verse 4 says. And they take it out because verse 4, they say there's not enough uh, early manuscripts that have verse 4 in it. It's only found in later manuscripts. They feel it was added later, right? And they added it later for context concerning the superstitions and the religious folklore of the time concerning the pools. But it wasn't in the earlier manuscripts. So they said, well, we're not going to put it in there. However, I think it entirely belongs. And I think it's, it's a fault of some of these translations to not put it in. They put a little note, oh, you know, see the reference for verse 4, right? And they put it down here at the bottom. But this is what verse 4 says. It says, For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water, and whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. That's what verse 4 says. So this is the legend behind these pools. When we read verse 7, the sick man tells Jesus, he says, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. Right? So if we don't have verse 4 and we go down and we read verse 7, we're like, why does he want to be put in the water when it's stirred up? Well, verse 4 answered that question for us. So verse 4 should be in there. Right? Anyway, was this just superstition? Is just this just folklore? Is this just, you know, legend that over time all these people are like, 
these waters have magical healing properties. I mean, you think of it today. There are places today where people will tell you that, hey, these, sa- these spas or those saunas or those natural water things, you go here and you swim in that lake or you go here and bathe in this sauna or whatever, you know, that, rent, that these naturally formed that come off these mountains here, you know, hey, it's, gonna be, it's great for you. It's going to rejuvenate you. You know, go find the fountain of youth like with Ponce de Leon. He's still searching for it out there somewhere, right? And these things, we have all these legends about these, these things where you can go to and you can bathe in this and you can do this and you can find that. And, you know, there's all these legends about all kinds of things. Was this just another one of those legends? Well, John doesn't treat it like another legend. I don't think it's superstition. Because if it was just superstition, would you have had a multitude of, of people with all these various ills, right? What various ills? Do you have the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed, as it says in verse 3? I mean, something extraordinary at one time happened to someone in this pool. So that now, all these people just sit there waiting for the waters to be stirred up. Matter of fact, even this person that Jesus come to says, I don't have any way to get to the pool fast enough when the waters are stirred up, right? Even, even if I could get up and walk into it, someone always beats me. Which means in his time, something happened because he had seen the waters get stirred up and he just couldn't get down there fast enough. So something, someone at some time was healed by stepping into that pool. Now you say to yourself, would God heal that way? Does, does God heal using pools? Right? Why, well, why, why wouldn't he? Right? I, mean, I mean, John writes, right? At, at, he says, for an, not the angel of the Lord. Right? Notice he says, an angel of the Lord. Right? John writes, an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. So why wouldn't God do it? It's called the, the pool or the, the house of mercy or something like that. That's what Bethesda means. So God used this as a healing tool for people. I mean, when you read through the Bible, you find that God can and do things in unexpected ways, right? I mean, if in 2 Kings chapter 4, they're making a stew, and all the, uh, the, the people that are with Elisha, they go out and they find ingredients for this stew. And of course, they don't know what they're getting. They're just grabbing things, right? Oh, that looks good. Let me grab those weird looking mushrooms over there, right? And so they put all this stuff into the stew and then they cook it up and they're eating it. And when they start eating the stew, they're like, uh-oh, it's poisonous, right? We've put something in here. They say there's death in this stew, I think is, is what it says in Second Kings, right? And Elisha... He doesn't even panic. He says, just grab some of that flour there and put it in. Okay, stir it up. You're good to go, All right? You're not going to die now. So if you have people being healed by Elisha purifying a stew, right? I mean, Naaman was healed by washing in the Jordan River. There was a guy who, who was uh, in... Uh, with the bones of Elisha, right? They throw him in the pit with the bones of Elisha and... And once he hits Elisha's bones, he's revived and gets up. Is that a normal way to, to heal someone? I mean, people were healed when the shadow of Peter fell on them. People were healed when Paul's handkerchiefs were laid upon them. I mean, is that a normal way 
that we would expect God to work? No, these are all unexpected and out of the ordinary way. So can God heal people by sending an angel down to have them stirring up the waters? Yes, he, he could. He absolutely could do that. But we do have to have wisdom with things like this because something isn't necessarily from God just because it's unexpected and unusual. Right? So Jesus comes to this area and he heads right down into the to the pools and he walks right over to the man, this guy who's been, you know, uh, there for, well, he hadn't been there for 38 years, but he's been invalid for 38 years. He's been there a long time. He's not 38 years old. He's older than that. His, uh, whatever happened to him that made him an invalid happened sometime after you know, I, w- I would say he's probably, I'm guessing, of course, but he'd been invalid for 38 years. So let's say he's 50, right? But Jesus knows he's been there a long time. Let's say he's been there 10 years. Because they would, they would just stay right there. They would basically set up their little house, their bed, and stay there right by the pool. So if that pool is stirred up, they could be the first one in it. So he heads right to this man. And he asks him some very simple yet profound question, which when we first look at the question, I probably thought, well, why did he ask him that? Because isn't it obvious? I mean, he's been, in, he's been crippled for 38 years. He's been hanging out this pool. Let's say he's been hanging out there 10 years. I don't know how long he's been hanging out there. But Jesus comes up to him and says, do you want to be healed? Well, what, what would your answer be after you've been hanging out, after you've been crippled for 38 years and been hanging out this pool that supposedly can heal people, if you could just get into it quick enough, do I want to be healed? Right? Of course I want to be healed. Why do you think I'm here? Right? It almost seems like a tone-deaf question to a certain degree. Like, are you not paying attention? Of course I want to be healed. But it's also about how you ask the question. Because I don't believe Jesus went up and goes, hey, do you want to be healed? I think he went up and said, do you want to be healed? In other words, are you sure? Do you really want to be healed? Because you've been here for a long time. And you've been crippled for 38 years. You want to be healed? Is that really what you want? Are you sure? Are you ready? Is this the time now? All right. Let me check your schedule. Let me know. Right? Get back to me. Are you clear? Is your schedule clear? Are you ready to be healed? Of course he wants to be healed. But understand this. The question is valid. Because when we're focusing on our own self, when we're focusing on our own ways, like if I I just follow this program, if I just do this, if if I just follow this, get my health better or whatever, I I, I can get myself back. 
I can make myself better. I don't, I don't need, I don't need Jesus. I don't need God. I don't, you know, I can do this on my own. And the longer we think that we can do it on our own, and the longer we stay in that crippled state, maybe physically or even spiritually, the more we push off our need for God. And so when God comes at that moment and he says, hey, do you want to be healed? He knows you want to be healed. He just wants to know if you want to be healed. Are you sure? Because you've been living like this for such a long time. It would seem to me that maybe you don't want to be healed. Maybe you like living like this. Maybe this is the choice you made and you want to stay in that choice. Do you want to continue living this way? Or do you want to get out of it? Do you want to be saved? Why don't you? Because that's more what Jesus is asking this man. Right? If you're neglecting the truth that's found in Jesus, if you're neglecting the hope that's found in Jesus, if, if you've been given that opportunity and you just keep pushing it off and then Jesus is going to come back one day. He's going to be like, are you sure you want to do this? Are you, are you ready? Are you ready to do this? Right? That's when, because it's a valid question. Jesus has to ask, are you, do you want to do this? Because he's not going to force you to do it. He wants you to be ready to do it. Have you reached that point of surrender yet? Do you still think that you can do this on your own? Do you still think that you can do this on your own power? Have you, have you run out of excuses yet? Or do you still have a good pocket full? Because this guy still has excuses. Because yeah. that's what he's, he gives an excuse right away. Do you want to be healed? And he says, well, I'm crippled. I can't get up really. And there's no one to help me. And I can't, what am I supposed to do? Roll down the steps into the pool? And I can't get over there fast. I mean, there's excuses. Right? It's just excuses. He says, have you run out? I mean, we're good at making excuses, right? Well, maybe tomorrow, not today. I had a rough week. It's not convenient. I don't have enough time. It doesn't feel right yet. But Jesus, is, but Jesus gives him a response. And, 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 you know, like I said, the man was full of excuses. And here's the thing about excuses, really quick. Our physical problems, our physical issues, affect our mental issues. Uh, uh, they affect our spiritual health, right? Our physical health affects our mental health, affects our, spirit, our spiritual health. This man had been in this condition so long that his will was probably as paralyzed as his body was. Did he even have the will to even get up to try to get into the pool anymore? I mean, when he gave Jesus that excuse, well, there's no one to help me. When Jesus is saying, hey, do you want to be saved? Do you want to be healed? Have you lost your will to even try? When we lose our will to continue to seek God, when we lose our will, 
to even cry out anymore. Right? When we become spiritually paralyzed in that way, that's sin in our lives. That's the effect that sin, excuse me, has on us. Right? It, it takes away our, our will to, to find healing. It takes away our will to look for hope. It takes away our will to seek out Jesus. It takes away our desire to change even when we can clearly see the damaging effects that the sin is having upon our lives. We can do this on our own. We've got this. But we actually don't got it. And we can't do it on our own. We don't even have the will to try anymore. We're just going to sit there on our bed, pull up the covers and not get out for the next 38 years of our life, right? Listen, our pride is the flag on top of the mast, which is the last thing people will see as the ship sinks into the water, right? Pirates of the Caribbean, remember that? Johnny Depp comes flying, floating into the, to the dock and his ship is sinking and he's up on the mast of the ship and he just steps off the mast onto the deck and the ship just sinks into the water. That's what a pride will do for us. It'll just, it'll, that'll be the last thing people see is our pride as we sink <laughs> below the waves. So we drown ourselves in our own attempt to continue to try to save ourselves or help ourselves when we can't do it anymore. And we know we can't do it, but we're just too prideful. We've lost the will to do anything else. Lifeguards will tell you that when someone is uh, having an issue, they see someone, they're possibly drowning out in the water, right? So I've heard that, that there's even possibly, I don't know if this is true, I couldn't verify it, but I heard that there's even, they even have a built-in delay. They see someone that looks like they're drowning, there's a, there's a built-in delay. They're, they're not to immediately run, Five seconds. You would think, now, five seconds makes, could be like life or death, right? In a situation like that. But lifeguards trained to know a couple of things. One is, is the person really drowning? Is it a problem? Right? And if they're not 100% sure if the person's actually drowning, then they have to know if the person's drowning. And you're like, well, this is ridiculous. Why would they have to know if the person's drowning? Because if that person doesn't know they're drowning yet and hasn't given up, trying to save themselves. Then when the lifeguard goes out there to rescue them, that person will fight the lifeguard and can end up taking them both down. They can drown both of them. So the question is, how long does it take a person to empty themselves of themselves? Do you understand? How long does it take you to get you out of the way so that you can then turn to Jesus? Right? Listen, it, this crippled, this guy had been crippled for 38 years. Sin was a problem in his life because later when Jesus meets him in the temple in verse 14, he says, see, listen, look, look, you're well. Now he says, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. What is that implying? That's implying that possibly a sinful action earlier in this guy's life is, is what got him to where he was. It was possibly a sinful action that crippled him. And Jesus is saying, listen, you're, you're healed. Right? Now don't sin anymore. Something worse may happen next time. 
Sin, pride, these things stop us from being healed. They get in the way. We need to surrender. And so that's what Jesus is asking him. When Jesus gets down to this guy who's on his bed, he says, have you surrendered yet? Have you emptied yourself of yourself? Have you gotten yourself out of the way? Are you done trying to do this on your own? Do you want to be healed? Can I heal you now? I came back to Jerusalem and sought you out. Can I heal you now? Is it time? Right? Have you surrendered? Have you come to the end of yourself? If you have, here is all you have to do. Take up your bed and walk. And it says he was healed. The guy started feeling like his legs strengthening, right? Or whatever, however it felt. If you've watched The Chosen, right? The guy just, he, can, he, can, he realizes his legs are like getting back under him and he gets up, but he's not, you know, he's not like perfect. He's still stumbling around like, whoa, you know, but, but he has the strength to, to get back up again. And he starts, woo, you know, he's excited. I'm healed. I mean, take up your bed and walk. That's not a logical thing to say to a guy who's been crippled for 38 years, right? But this is what Jesus is asking when he's telling him, hey, do you want to be healed? He's asking, are you ready for God to do something that you can't do on your own? Well, that's what he's saying when he says, take up your bed and walk. Listen, it's not something that physically you can do on your own. You're not going to be able to do this without me. Take up your bed and walk. God will often command us to do something that we can't do on our own power. And we can only do through Jesus. Could Peter walk on water? No. Did Peter walk on water? Yes. How? Through Jesus. What did Jesus say? Step out of the boat, Peter. Come on. Right? And he did it. When did Peter start sinking? When he took his eyes off Jesus. Right? Taking up his bed and walking was trusting in the Lord. It was stepping out of the boat. It was responding to the Lord when the Lord said, are you ready? It was saying, yes, I want to be healed. And he did. And he was healed. I've heard it said that he wasn't carrying his mat. He was carrying a trophy, right? He was victorious in Christ Jesus. That was his trophy, was the fact that he was carrying his bed around. Look, I'm no longer on my bed. I'm carrying it. I'm walking around. He's dancing, you know, through the streets of Jerusalem or whatever. Isn't that the guy who was down by the pool? Isn't, isn't that guy been crippled for 38 years? Yes. What's he doing? Looks like he's dancing to me, right? People noticed. He didn't need the pool. He just needed Jesus. This miracle is an illustration of the grace of God. This miracle Right? is an illustration of his grace and his mercy and his love. The fact that Jesus came to this man, sought him out, spoke to him, healed him, and then made him, met him later in the temple is proof of Lord's grace and Lord's mercy and his Lord, the Lord's love for us. I came in to heal you, and now I'm letting you know later when he meets him, right? Sin no more. That's because God loves us. Again, if you've watched this episode on The Chosen, it's in season two. After he heals this man, it's Matthew, I think, who comes up to him 
and uh, and on the show, and he says, "Why didn't you just wait a few more minutes until after sundown? Then it wouldn't have been the Sabbath, and we wouldn't have this problem on our hands." And I bring this up because Jesus's response to Matthew on the show echoes what's you know what the person was waiting for actually. Jesus's response is to Matthew says, well, kind of says it smirkingly, right? He says, well, sometimes you just got to stir up the water, right? The thing is, is that the guy was looking for physical healing through a pool. He was waiting for the waters to be stirred up, right? Because that was the legend. An angel of God could come down, stir up the waters. You can get in, you can get healed. Well, guess what? The angel of the Lord showed up, the son of God, and he stirred up the waters. He didn't stir them up physically. He didn't reach down into the pool and go, woo, all right, who can get in first? Come on, woo, right? He just walked right over to the guy and said, do you want to be healed? And in doing so, he stirred up the waters. He stirred up the waters spiritually for that guy. But he also stirred up the waters physically because people saw what he did. And the guy carried his mat and it was the Sabbath. And oh, everyone started noticing, hey, what are you doing carrying your bed on the Sabbath? Right? And he's like, well, the guy told me to. What guy? The guy that healed me and told me to take up my bed and walk. Who was it? I don't know. Right? I don't know who it was. Well, it was Jesus. And Jesus meets him later. And when he finds out later it was Jesus, then he goes and tells him, hey, guess what? It was Jesus. Jesus healed me. He wasn't ratting on Jesus, right? He was sharing the gospel is what he was doing. Hey, I just found out who healed me. It was Jesus. And they're like, oh, right? Jesus. He was excited. Jesus stirred up the waters. So I'm going to end with the same question I started with. Did did Jesus come to Jerusalem for the feast or did he come to Jerusalem for one man? He came to Jerusalem for one man. But he came to Jerusalem intentionally and purposefully to stir up the waters, which is exactly what they were waiting for at that pool. But he came for one man, and he came on the Sabbath. He came to show that he was the Lord of the Sabbath. He came to show to the man who was waiting there by the mystical pools of Bethesda, who had been waiting years and years for a supernatural stirring of the waters. He came to show him that he can stir up the waters himself, that Jesus can do it. Listen, I'm the one who stirs up the waters. I'm the one who heals. I have the power to do this, right? I have the authority to heal. I have the authority to give life, and I give it abundantly. Listen, I healed you. I'm going to heal you through the power of my spoken word. Take up your bed and walk. And that power has been given to me by the Father, by God. I'm the Son of God. And that's how Jesus stirred the waters physically, right? That's how he caused a disturbance. That's how he created the commotion. That's how came, Jesus came, I can use one more. He came and rocked the boat, right? It was controversial, not because he healed the guy. Matter of fact, when they're mad because he's carrying his bed on the Sabbath, do they, you know, do they take it out on the guy? No, they don't do anything. They just want to know who, who told you you could do this. Point us to the guy who told you you could do this. They don't care about the guy who's healed, right? They don't care about him at all, right? So it wasn't controversial that he was healed. What was controversial is the fact that Jesus healed him. And Jesus healed him on the Sabbath, and then it's controversial because of Jesus, who Jesus claims to be. 
right? That he is the son of God, that he is God. So there's no more anonymity for Jesus. If he had, he left Judah because, oh, you know, hey, I'm drawing too much attention. He came back and then purposely drawn attention to himself and to what he was doing. And that's when the trouble starts. If Jesus had been looking at not drawing attention to himself, well, guess what? That's changed, right? Because he stirred up the waters. But for you and I, I want you to understand this. And we're going to take communion here at the end, so just hang on. We can get complacent and comfortable in our relationship with the Lord. We can operate too much on and in our own power. Right? And not rely on what we truly need, which is right in front of us, which is Jesus. Spurgeon says this about the man at the pool. He says, a blindness had come over these people at the pool. There they were, and there was Christ. Who could heal them? But not a single one of them sought Jesus. Their eyes were fixed on the water, expecting it to be stirred up. Right? They were so taken up with their own chosen way, which was waiting for the pool, that the true way was neglected. Spurgeon pictured the multitude of people waiting around the pool of Bethesda, all of them waiting, right? Looking at the water. You know, they don't want to take their eyes off the water because they might miss it if it starts getting stirred up. And yet there was the son of God right there in front of them, standing there and no one was looking at Jesus, right? They were looking for that angel to stir up the waters when Jesus was right in front of them. And Spurgeon says, how foolish is that, right? How foolish is that? Well, guess what? You're right. It's foolish. So here's the thing. Empty yourself of yourself and give yourself to Jesus. Be strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't neglect Jesus. Don't neglect Jesus. And the other thing I want to bring out is this. What Jesus did was intentional. It was purposeful. He came to heal the man. And at the same time, he came to stir up the waters as far as drawing attention to himself, right? So he stirred up the waters both physically and spiritually. So I'm going to tell you, as far as your walk with the Lord is concerned, be intentional in your walk, right? A light in the darkness attracts attention. So point people to Jesus. Be like the disciples who in Acts chapter 17 are accused of turning the world upside down. In other words, they're saying, look at these disciples. They're stirring up the waters, right? Why? Why, Why were they accused of that? Because they proclaimed Jesus. That's why. So proclaim Jesus and stir up the waters. Now is a good time to do that. Amen.